For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Love That Gives. Love That Gives. This is part one, Romans chapter 12, verse 13. So in our ongoing exposition now of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, so we've been working through this letter, we've arrived at the end of a brief section that Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to as general injunctions, general instructions, general commands for the people of God, general uh, instructions for his church. Verses 9 through 13 represent a series of exhortations, general commands, if you will, that govern how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, how we are to live as Christians, how we are to live with one another in this body, in this institution called the church. Now, these exhortations are to godly conduct, and they're given, these exhortations are given with a view to adversity. Uh, these exhortations aren't practiced in a vacuum. They're practiced in the midst of difficulty. Uh, they're practiced in the midst of our own sin. They're practiced in the midst of assaults from within the church and from assaults uh, from without the church, from outside the church. We are going to suffer tribulation as we trek through the wilderness of this fallen world on our way toward the heavenly Jerusalem. We're going to have trials and tribulations. We're going to have suffering and sorrow. As we discovered last week, it has been given... We know from Philippians chapter one, it has been given as a gift of God's grace on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for us to believe in him, but also for us to suffer for his sake. As we face those difficulties, those trials and tribulations that attend our way as the people of God, when, when sorrows like sea billows roll, we are to apply those truths that form the foundation of our faith. We are to apply those truths that inform our understanding of the gospel and we are to conduct ourselves who know by faith that in Jesus Christ it is well with our soul. Amen? We're to apply those truths as we live and worship and serve and witness for him. The conduct, that conduct that is worthy of the gospel, that conduct that is worthy of the gospel begins with our responsibility to the Lord. In view of the mercies of God, in view of all that has been lavished upon us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are, brothers and sisters, we are to present ourselves then as a living sacrifice to God. It is the only rational, rational or reasonable response of someone who has been gifted with all of that grace that pertains to the gospel. Refusing then to be conformed to the pattern and patterns, the philosophies, the conduct of this present evil age, being transformed rather by the renewing of our mind. Now that conduct which is worthy of the gospel, that service of worship then, involves a sober-minded assessment of the grace that has been given to us by God for our service in the church. We must not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We're to be humble. We must, take, we must not take for ourselves prerogatives in the Lord's church that don't belong to us, that aren't given to us. And having gifts apportioned to us by God, having a measure of faith that's been apportioned to us by God, we're to use it. And we're to serve the Lord with our gifts in proportion to our faith. Now finally, finally, our conduct, Romans chapter 12, 
is to be chiefly concerned with, then, or centrally focused upon love. That is the the bond, if you will, that binds us together. It's love. It binds us to the Lord. It binds us to one another in the communion of the church. Particularly, we are to be concerned with that love that characterizes or distinguishes our relationships with one another in the church. What is it that describes our relationship to one another? What is it that should characterize how we interact with one another, how we treat one another, how we serve the Lord? What should characterize those relationships? Paul would say a love that is without hypocrisy, a sincere love, a genuine love. We're not used to that in the world. The world displays a very hypocritical love. The world displays a so-called love. Paul, through the words of scripture, the Lord is revealing to us what biblical love looks like, what sincere love looks like. And Paul begins in this text by demanding a love that is without hypocrisy. Now, in attempting then to describe a love that is free from the stain or stench of hypocrisy, we've said that a sincere love is from the heart. It's not merely outward action or outward ritual. It's not merely in word or in tongue, but a sincere love is from the heart. And that sincere love in our description is focused upon another person with affectionate warmth or delight, with familial warmth or delight. That's why we call one another brothers and sisters in the church. That kind of love has a warmth, has an affection to it. It's focused upon another person with affectionate warmth or delight such that you think, speak, and act with an enduring commitment and with self-sacrificing devotion to that person's biblical and spiritual good. When you love, you're loving in that way if it's sincere. A genuine love is love that is focused upon another with affectionate warmth or delight such that you think, speak, and act with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to that person's biblical and spiritual good. It's a love that does no harm to a neighbor. In that sense, it's a fulfillment of the law. It's a love that adheres to the moral constraints of the law, the good and holy and just law of God. It's a love that abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. It's a love that's characterized by a natural, tender, even familial warmth or delight. It's self-denying in the pursuit of its preference for another's preference, right? It's a, it's a pursuit. It runs ahead pursuing another's interests above its own. It's not merely a love in word or in tongue, but rather, verse 11, it acts with a fervent zeal, with a diligent zeal. It acts in deed and in truth. Ultimately, it acts after the example of our Lord. It acts in service to the one who has loved us in the same way, analogously, and has given himself for us. So in verse 12 then, a genuine love, a sincere love, a love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy, is a love that disposes us to believe all things and hope all things. And so it's a sincere love that rejoices in hope. Acting in hope, acting in faith, with the expectation of a future day where grace will triumph over sin. Sin may win the day, but grace will triumph in the end. A sincere love acts, it rejoices in hope of that future day. A genuine love constrains us or compels us then to bear all things looking to that future day, to endure all things as we hope in that future day. It's a sincere love that is patient in tribulation. Ultimately, 
It's a love that is defined as a fruit of God's spirit. A love that is only possible as we rely upon him and continue steadfastly in prayer. Now that kind of love is not native to our fallen selves, is it? It's not natural to us. It is hard work. It requires a diligent pursuit. Frankly, it, it, it requires a miracle in the heart of man to love in that way. That miracle is the new birth. That miracle is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It requires that God does a work in us. It is impossible apart from the Lord. It requires an active pursuit on the part of God's people. We cannot coast along and imagine that this love is going to organically work among us. It requires diligence. It requires constant vigilance. It often requires humility. It often requires sacrifice. This kind of love is costly love. It requires repentance. It requires reconciliation. And it's the absence of this kind of love it will destroy a relationship, destroy a marriage, a family. It will destroy a church. Brothers and sisters, as we consider the kind of love that Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12, we have to plead with the Lord that he would be gracious to cause us to abound in this grace. A love that is without hypocrisy. Now this morning, Paul continues his train of thought. Paul continues the development of that original theme in verse 13 with distributing the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. A love that is without hypocrisy, a love that is free from the stain, the stench of hypocrisy, is a love that is generous. It's a love that is benevolent. It is a love that is hospitable. Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now, at first glance, in verse 13, you're going to notice a connection between those two clauses. You'll look there with me. Paul has been making these connections all along, and we've been noting the connection if we, as we've been working through these verses. There are connections between those clauses in each of the verses that we've studied. In verse 13, the connection in verse 13 has to do with sincere love's self-denying use of material resources. That's what we're dealing with in verse 13. Genuine love's self-denying, sacrificial use of our own resources, and particularly material resources in verse 13. The first clause exhorts a sacrificial love that provides for the needs of the saints. In those words, distributing to the needs of the saints. The second clause exhorts a sacrificial love that provides for the needs of strangers. That's what it means to be hospitable. We'll look at that if the Lord allows next, next week. Now, from both of these statements, distributing to the needs of the saints and giving to hospitality, both of these statements, uh, we can derive uh, a basic principle. And the basic principle is this. A sincere love is a love that gives. A sincere love is a love that gives. It sacrifices, it labors, it gives. And that principle may be most clearly stated by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to John in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, by this we know love. Do you want to know what love is? By this we know what love is. Because he, the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. Love, a sincere love, gives. Do you see? Exemplified most in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we, 
If we're going to love as we're called to love, if we're going to love others analogously, similarly to the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated love for us, then we're going to love like he loves. And we're going to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods, we're talking about our material resources now, our material goods. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. The love of God does not abide in that one who shuts up his heart. And that, it boils down there to a heart issue. And we're going to look at that this morning. In other words, if you say that you love God, if you profess to love God, and yet you fail to show genuine compassion from the heart for your brothers and sisters in need, if you fail to enter into fellowship with them in their need, enter into fellowship with them in their difficulty, in their adversity, if you fail to do that, then your love smacks of hypocrisy. And John would say that you're a hypocrite. John says, verse 18, my little children, let us not love merely in word or in tongue, but let us love in deed and in truth. And by this, by an evidence of the work of his spirit, by this fruit of his spirit, we will know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Let love be without hypocrisy. Do you want to assure your heart before him that you are a child of the living God and love in the way that Paul is calling us to love, right? Love without hypocrisy. Open your heart, right? Paul said to the Corinthians, our hearts are wide open. You're not being restricted by us. You're being restricted by your own affections. Our arms are open wide to you. Our hearts are wide open to you, right? Open your heart to your brother or sister in their need. Enter into their suffering. Enter into their difficulty, and share fellowship with them in their need. Now, with regard to Paul's first statement then in verse 13, the source of the word translated there, distributing, is the Greek word koinoneo, koinoneo. And many of you have heard that word before. That may be a word that's familiar. We often use that word to describe Christian fellowship. It's a word that means or refers to Christian fellowship. The word literally means to share, to share. Now, specifically, verse 13, the word here in context refers to sharing your material goods in love for your brothers and sisters in need. Sharing material goods. But it goes beyond simply sharing material goods, okay? It means even more than that. If you understand the use of the word, it refers there to entering into fellowship with them. Koinoneo. Entering into fellowship with a brother or sister in their need. Sharing their need, so to speak, sharing their burden, so to speak. The word distributing, if you're reading uh, Texas Receptus, Receive Text, or the ESV contributing, those words sound a bit technical, right? They sound a bit, a bit cold, impersonal. Koinoneo involves something far more personal than mere distribution, okay? Something far more personal. Their burden becomes your burden. Their difficulty becomes your difficulty. Their trial becomes your trial. Right? We weep with those who weep. We're burdened with the burdens of the family, with our brothers and sisters. One suffers, we all suffer together, Paul says. One has a need, we all have a need. Their burden has become your burden. Their hardship becomes your hardship. We fellowship together with them in their need. 
it's not necessarily that we are to enter into fellowship with their mere desires or preferences. We're to enter into fellowship with them in their need. We're to enter into fellowship with them, with their necessities, with what is lacking. Now that distinction, I think, is a very critical, is a critical distinction. Think with me, it's very common in our time to find someone who has trouble distinguishing between what is a want and what is a need. Many people have real difficulty distinguishing between a want and a need. It's very common to find someone who refuses to sacrifice a want for the sake of a need because they have trouble distinguishing a want from a need, right? I'm broke, and they're streaming eight services on Apple TV uh, and renting movies every night. They don't know what broke is, right? Broke is hamburger helper without the hamburger, all right? They don't know what broke is yet, right? There's a difference. There's a difference between truly lacking what you need and wanting or coveting more than you need. There's a difference. The word broke is often a subjective complaint rather than an an objective reality. It's often a subjective complaint rather than an objective reality. And in that situation, your helping may actually be hurting. Your helping may be enabling. Often, often, brothers and sisters, there is far more to sharing their burden than simply writing a check. And koinoneo, encompasses that more, right? It encompasses the the full-orbed nature of entering into their burden. We are to enter into the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in their need, verse 13, distributing then from our material resources or distributing from our resources to the needs of the saints. Now, if you spend any time reading your Bible, you'll recognize this theme as a familiar principle at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. This is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ gave everything to redeem us. And we are to love in a similar way, in the same way. Paul, this exhortation in verse 13, goes well beyond our basic responsibility to the tithe. And it speaks to the very heart of what it means to love your brothers and sisters with a sincere love. It speaks to the very heart of what it means to love without hypocrisy. It reflects on lends uh, practicality to the second great commandment of the law, that namely we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. This teaches us how we are to love. Now we see several examples of this in the Bible. The Bible is replete with examples of this very principle. This principle is exemplified before the law. It's exemplified under the law. It's exemplified in the new covenant church. And I want want you to see that from a few examples in the text of scripture. And to begin, we turn to Deuteronomy 15. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And we see this love exemplified under the law. It was commanded of the Israelites under the law of God, Deuteronomy chapter 15. In the context of Deuteronomy 15, the children of Israel under the law as a a practical uh, outworking or as a practical implication of this kind of love, the children of Israel were commanded every seventh year, every sabbatical year, to give a release of debts. The release of debts was for the sake of the poor who were among them. It was a way to care for the poor. They were to observe that sabbatical release until there were no poor among them. They were to continue this release of debts every seven years. And its release 
it was itself a way of caring for the poor and needy. Now this release every seven years could be exploited. You can imagine someone who didn't love in this way. Someone's heart was closed off to their brothers and sisters in need, and what might they do? They might start calculating. Well, that release is coming up in a year from now. I don't want to lose everything that I've lent out, so I'm not going to give in years five, six, and seven. I'll give in year one, give them seven years to pay it back, right? That is a miserly calculation that reveals a a wicked and uh, ungrateful and uh, uh, hypocritical heart. That's someone who's not loving without hypocrisy, okay? This could be exploited. So the Lord then instructs them in verse seven. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not, and here it is, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. It requires both attitude, right? The attitude of heart and then that generous act of giving. You shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But rather, verse eight, you shall open your hand wide to him. It's referring to generosity there. And willingly lend him. That refers to the heart. You're willing to lend, uh, willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. So as opposed to grudgingly giving, as opposed to merely giving out of a mere sense of duty, right? And as opposed to giving like court-ordered love, we're to give with an open heart and an open hand. Verse nine, beware then exploiting this guideline, this rule, this command. Beware lest there be a wicked thought where? In your heart. Giving like this, brothers and sisters, is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of checking the box just calculating your 10%, checking that off every week. It's not a matter of ritual. It's a matter of the heart. Beware lest there be a wicked heart, in, a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, a year of release is at hand. And your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you. The Lord is saying, don't be concerned with repayment of the gift. Don't concern yourself with repayment. Don't concern yourself with the gift. Do not withhold the help that he needs. The Lord is the one who cares ultimately for you and for him. The Lord is the one who provides. The Lord is the one who has given you everything that you have. Verse 10, you shall surely give to him and your heart. There it is again. Your heart should not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. You must not grieve the loss of that gift. This is the way the Lord blesses the one who is in need. He blesses the one who is in need through the means of your willing gift, your gift from the heart, your love for that person. And who else does the Lord bless? The Lord blesses the one who gives. The Lord provides. The Lord is not unjust to ignore your good work there, Paul says. The Lord sees your heart. The Lord knows and the Lord provides all that you need. And he is able to provide everything that you need from his riches in grace by Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is able to supply your need also. You're not to grieve the loss of that gift. As much as it is an act of love from the heart for your brother, it is an act of faith, isn't it? In the Lord your God. Ultimately, it's an expression of love for him. Verse 11, because the poor will never cease from the land. 
You'll have the poor with you always. Always, you might say, as an opportunity, as a blessing from God for you to love them in this way. Brothers and sisters, that's how you've been loved, right? That's how you and I have been loved. The Lord Jesus Christ has loved us in this way. And this is out, there's not going to be this need, this want, this lack in heaven. Poverty, hunger, difficulty, adversity, suffering, sorrow will all go away. Will all go away. This is our opportunity to love in the way that we have been loved. It's our opportunity to express love for our brothers and sisters, ultimately love for the Lord himself by loving him and by loving them in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. We have opportunity in this life only to love in that way, to love him and to love one another in the way that he has loved us. It doesn't mean that love is atoning. His love is exemplary in its sacrifice. His love is exemplary in that God has loved us to the end of himself. The Lord Jesus Christ loved his own who are in this world. He loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Don't grieve the opportunity to love your brother and sister in that way. There will always be need for this expression of love among the Lord's people. As long as we are in this tent, there will always be need for this expression of love. Therefore, verse 11, I command you saying, you shall open your hand wide. Generous, that reflects both material and heart, right? Physical and spiritual. You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're not to cling tightly to those things which the Lord has given us. He has given them to us. He will supply all our need. There's a story of a little boy on his way to church. And uh, for his walk to church, his dad gives him two quarters. One quarter is to give to the Lord. The other quarter is for the boy to buy himself an ice cream cone after church. So as the boy is walking, he trips over a storm drain and he drops one of the quarters. As that quarter is falling through the iron gate that lies over the drain, the boy cries out, Lord, there goes your quarter. (laughs) We are to give willingly, freely, with an open hand. We can't cling to our quarter that the Lord has given us, right? We're not to grieve the loss of that gift. The Lord will provide for us. Now, there is a, there's a remarkable, a, a remarkable example of this kind of love given to us in the, uh, the example of the early church. This kind of sincere love in the practice of the early church, this kind of genuine love uh, that was in, exemplified in the experience of the early church. And for that, turn with me to Acts chapter two. I want you to see this. And as Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, I want to stir us up by way of example, okay? By way of example. And we're going to look at the example beginning with the early church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have Luke's account of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit is poured out on the saints there at Pentecost. In verse 5, gathered together at Pentecost in Jerusalem, you have devout men. These were dispersed Jews. They were gathered together from every nation under heaven, Luke says, Jews from the diaspora, 
Verse nine, these were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia. They were there, those from Judea, from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabs. Many of these would have been considered Hellenistic Jews, uh, dispersed Jews who were um, from Hellenistic lands that had come back into Jerusalem for Pentecost. And this multitude was gathered together in Jerusalem for Pentecost when the Spirit of God is poured out on the early church. When the Spirit of God moved in power at Pentecost. And in verse 41, then those, at the preaching of Peter, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Just explosive growth in the early church in Jerusalem. And many of those saved that day Many of those saved that day never left Jerusalem. They never left. Now, can you imagine, right? They're from all over the known world at that time, but they didn't, they didn't leave. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You're getting new revelation from God. You have living apostles preaching and teaching, performing signs and wonders, miracles, healings among the people. The spirit of God is at work. People are being saved by the thousands the Lord continuously adding to his church daily. And they thought to themselves, we're not leaving. We're not leaving. And I relate to that sentiment. Right? <laughs> we wouldn't want to leave either. So verse 42, verse 42, they continued. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together... They had all things in common, koinos. Again, it's a root from where we get our word koinoneo, that fellowship that we were referring to. This means that they had all things, they shared all things. They shared all things together, verse 45, and sold their possessions and their goods. So we get the concept of sharing our material goods with one another and divided them among all as anyone had need. Many of those who had gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost Many had given up all that they had to be there. The saints in Jerusalem regarded them with a sacrificial koinoneo. They welcomed them with a loving koinos. They had all things in common, including the need. They had all things in common, including the burden. They had all things in common. They shared in fellowship with one another and the need of one became the need of all. The suffering of one became the suffering of all. They wept with those who wept. They rejoiced with those who rejoiced. We're used to associating the work of God's spirit with signs and wonders, aren't we? We're used to associating the work of God's spirit with the fire upon their heads at Pentecost or the speaking with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. When we look at Pentecost, we're used to associating the work of the spirit with those miraculous gifts in Acts 2. But I would submit to you that an even more powerful manifestation of the work of God's spirit among them is the love that you see in the book of Acts for one another. The love that you see demonstrated between them for one another in distributing to the needs of the saints, to borrow language from Romans chapter 12, verse 13, right? That evidence, that manifestation of the spirit's work among them is a powerful testimony of the spirit's work in the life of a believer. They had all things in common not only sharing their material goods, but sharing the burden, sharing the need, sharing the suffering. Now, another reason 
For this great need among the early church was persecution. Not only did they suffer need because of the displacement of so many people at that time, they also, the early church also suffered severe persecution. Flip the page and look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Here's an example of the persecution that Peter and John suffered. Verse three, they laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. At this time, the Jewish authorities had already begun excommunicating people from the temple, excommunicating people from the synagogues. Christians would lose their jobs. Christians would be disowned from their families, disinherited. Christians would lose their livelihood. Christians would lose their, their possessions, the lands that they owned. And although persecution in the early church would have been financially devastating, the letter to dispersed Christian Hebrews said that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. They endured all of this Knowing, remember we talked about being renewed in your mind, right? How doctrine leads to practice. What we know impacts what we believe, what we value and how we live, think, believe and act, right? It impacts the way that we think. Knowing they accepted joyfully this providence of God, hard providence though it may be, they accepted that hard providence joyfully knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. And verse four, Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of, of the men came to be about 5,000. You add women and children to that, we're talking about a large number of people. Right? And as the numbers grew in the early church, so would the need also grow. And as the need grew, so did the generosity of the early church. Look at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one Soul, they entered into one another's burden, entered into one another's need with fellowship, with Christian love. Neither, verse 32, did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common, koinos. They shared all things. It doesn't mean that they put everything into a common treasury. It's not what that means. It means that when someone needed something, they gave it freely. When someone needed someone, they did not close off their heart to their Christian brother or sister. They opened their hand wide and gave from the heart. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It's God's grace that is at the heart of this kind of giving. It's God's grace that is at the heart of this kind of Christian experience. It begins with the gift of God's grace. And grace is also the result of this kind of giving. The Lord blesses the one who gives with grace. Grace comes before and grace follows after. It's all grace, do you see? We need to abound in this grace. Verse 34, nor as a result was there anyone among them who lacked. That's amazing, isn't it? This devastating need in the church, this critical need, this crippling need in the church, and yet as a result of the love, the sincere love of God's people, the generosity of God's people, no one lacked anything. 
You wouldn't have walked around with the thousands, the thousands in Jerusalem at that time, having dis- displaced from homes and lands and families and jobs, having given up everything to be there. You would have walked around Jerusalem and you would have found no homeless. You wouldn't have found a believer homeless. You wouldn't have found a believer without food. No one had lack. For all, verse 34, who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed each as anyone had need. Their example of this is not an apologetic for a communist commune. uh, We're not preaching socialism or communism with this. If you went into the church at Jerusalem, there would have been there, so there would have been those there who were wealthy, and there would have been those there who were poor. If you went into the church in Jerusalem, there would have been those there who had much, and there would have been those there who had little. But there was no one starving, and there was no one there homeless. In the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14, Paul says, the abundance of some was supplied for the burden or for the lack of others. And in that sense, there was inequality between them. Those with more satisfied the need of those who had lack. Later, those who once lacked may have had more that they then satisfied the needs of those who lacked. That's what we're to desire, isn't it? The Lord says, that the one who steals is to steal no longer, but he is rather what? To work, to labor diligently with his hands so that he might give to the one who has need for the purpose of giving. So the one who has more, it's been given to supply need. The one who lacks, you may one day find yourself having more, and you supply the lack. Paul says, I have learned, (laughs) in whatever circumstance I find myself, I have learned both to abound and to suffer need. To both to abound and to be abased. We have to learn. We have to learn how to honor, how to glorify the Lord in both of those circumstances. Many of the saints in Jerusalem suffered need as a result of displacement. Many of the saints in Jerusalem suffered need just as a result of being under the slavery and oppression of a Roman government. Many of them suffered under the ravages of a severe persecution, but to complicate matters further in the book of Acts, Luke then records the account of a great famine. Look over at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we see this account of a a crippling famine Verse 27, Acts 11, verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Verse 29. So then, the disciples, those in Antioch, each according to his ability determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Notice in verse 29, that principle, that it was according to his ability. As we are to make a sober-minded assessment, Romans chapter 12, of that gift of faith that God has apportioned to each one, we should make a sober-minded assessment of what we're able to give as a result of God's gift to us. It should be a sober-minded assessment. They gave, verse 29, according to his ability, 
and determined to send relief from the brethren uh, to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Verse 30, they, did, they also did this, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so then, in preparation for this great famine that would take place, mass collection for poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem begins. And this mass collection is referenced multiple times in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul records that the elders in Jerusalem exhorted him to remember the poor. He said it was the very thing that he also wanted to do. But Paul was concerned for the poor, in particular the poor in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem collection would become a near constant focus for the Apostle Paul for the next 20 years of his ministry among predominantly Gentile churches. That the Gentiles should give to poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem. And we see references to this collection all over the New Testament. To the church at Rome, when we get to Romans 15, verse 25, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Verse 26, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty also is to minister to them in material things. Right? They had this attitude. They being many were one body in Christ and individually then members of one another. That was their attitude that very attitude that Paul enjoins here in Romans chapter 12. Their common union with the Lord Jesus Christ brought them into a koinonia, a communion with one another in the fellowship of the gospel. The account of this collection on the pages of the New Testament is a, a tremendous testimony of the Spirit's work in the early church. It is a tremendous testimony to the Spirit-wrought love that the disciples in the early church had for one another to their brothers and sisters in need. Lloyd-Jones on this text in Romans 12, 13 said this. He said, Paul is saying here that you do not merely distribute to the necessities of the saints, but that you enter into fellowship with them, that you become partners with them, that you share with them. In other words, you must feel that their burden is your burden that you are in hardship with them and that you really are feeling it yourself. You have entered into a kind of partnership with them in their predicament. You enter into their suffering. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Koinonia. now. It is to love without hypocrisy. It is a love that enters into sincere fellowship with a brother or sister in need. Romans 12, 13, it is a love that distributes to the needs of the saints. As powerful a, as the example of the early church was in this regard, the early church was compelled to such love by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why would someone love in this way? Because we've been loved in this way. We've been loved in this way. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In consideration of Paul's collection then for needy saints in Jerusalem, Paul now in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 instructs the church at Corinth. And he begins, he begins in the way that we've begun. Paul begins by calling their attention to an example of faithful giving in the, the experience of the early church. He calls them to the example of the churches of Macedonia. Verse one, 
Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. This kind of giving is a grace of God. That, verse 2, in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. They were joyful and they were poor, okay? They rejoiced and they were poor. In their great rejoicing, in their great joy, and in their poverty, that circumstance abounded in their generosity. Verse 3, for I bear witness that according to their ability, right, in, accords, in accordance with that sober-minded assessment of what they've been given, and yes, even beyond their ability, giving even more, they were freely willing. Do you see their heart, right? Their heart um, evidenced in this, verse four, begging us, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the what? The fellowship of ministering to the saints. Those beleaguered believers in Macedonia pleaded with Paul, pleaded with Paul, let us help them. Let us be a part of that church. Let us be a part of that work. We want to fellowship in the sake of the gospel. Don't count us out here in Macedonia as off on our own, as not included in what's going on in the Lord's church. We're a part of the Lord's church too. We want to give. We want to enter in. Our brothers and sisters are suffering. We want to enter into that suffering with them. We love, they don't even know the saints in Jerusalem. Right? They're out in the, in the Netherlands, in Macedonia. Many of those in Jerusalem, they wouldn't have even known. And that they're begging the Apostle Paul that they might participate in that fellowship that fellowship of ministering to them in their need. Verse five, and not only as we had hoped, Paul said, but they first gave of themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Not just giving of their material resources, but giving of themselves. That reflects a Christian heart. That reflects a spirit's work. That reflects a love that is without hypocrisy. That reflects, reflects a sincerity, a genuineness. So then in verse six, we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he would also compel or complete this grace in you as well. Paul then moves from example, the example of the Macedonians to exhortation. Verse seven. But as you abound in everything, as you are abounding all these graces in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Don't fall short of this grace also. If we're going to truly move on to maturity in the Christian life, you can't grow in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and leave off growing in verse 13. If we're going to move on to maturity, it necessitates, brothers and sisters, that we will, with love, a love that is without hypocrisy, distribute to the needs of the saints and be given to hospitality. We're going to love in this way. We cannot lag behind in this particular grace. Paul describes it as a test of sincere love. Verse eight, I speak not by commandment. I'm not going to command court-ordered love, but verse eight, I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. There's a tendency toward obeying this mechanically, or mechanistically, right? ritualistically, obeying this in a way that is not from the heart. We can give as an, as an act of obedience, as an act of duty, and not give from the heart. That was what the Lord rebuked the Pharisees for, right? But Paul intends here to emphasize the free and gracious and voluntary and loving and willing nature of their giving. And so he appeals to them to search their hearts, to see their heart, 
their own heart in light of the evident love demonstrated by the Macedonians. Hold the Macedonians up as an example and examine your heart against their example. And then, brothers and sisters, hold the example of the Lord Jesus Christ up before your eyes, before your sight, and examine your own love before the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Examine your own commitment to the Lord's church against the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Examine your own love for your brothers and sisters against the example of the Lord's love for them. That's what Paul is doing here. From the heart, from the heart, Paul's entreaty for Onesimus in Philemon verse eight, Paul says, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Being such a one as Paul, the agent, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Right, then Paul makes an appeal for the sake of love. Here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, he's doing the very same thing. He's making an appeal for the sake of love. He says in verse 8, I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul is testing our love, the sincerity of our love by the diligence of these examples. Ultimately, we're to evaluate our own love in light of the love that Jesus Christ has demonstrated toward us through the gospel. Verse nine, for you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. Follow Paul's train of thought with me. Dear Corinthians, dear brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, I'm not going to command you to give to this collection of saints in Jerusalem. I'm not going to command you. I'm simply going to appeal to you on the sincerity of your love. Why? Because you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has given to you. You know what he has given for you. Now notice the extent of his love for you. The extent of his love is this, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. That's not hyperbole. Imagine the riches that he enjoyed in his glory. And then imagine the depths of his humiliation as he walked this earth for us. Then notice the intent of that humiliation. Notice the intent of his love for you so that you, who are entirely undeserving of this grace, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that's not hyperbole either. He will spend the ages pouring, upon, pouring out upon his own exceeding riches in order to demonstrate his kindness towards those who have placed faith in his son. How should we then respond? How should we respond? Well, we should take action. Verse 10, in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. Take action. Take action in accord with your heart. That as there was a readiness to desire it as it was there in your heart, so there also must now be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, if there is first a willing heart, then take action. 
It is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you then burdened, but now by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, he who gathered little had no lack. You, brothers and sisters, become a means through which the Lord himself cares for his church. Don't shut up your heart toward your brother or sister in his need. Don't withhold, koinonau, don't withhold Christian fellowship with your brother or sister in their need. Enter into their need with them. Enter into their need alongside them. And brothers and sisters, Pray with me that God would be pleased to bless us with his grace that we might abound in this kind of love. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this kind instruction from your word. We are in great need, Lord. We are in great need. We know that this love, this kind of love is not native to our fallenness, to our fallen flesh. It doesn't come natural to us, Lord, any longer because of our sin. We need the help of your spirit. We need, Lord, your spirit to, to bring forth this kind of love out of our hearts for the sake of your own name, for the sake of your church, for the sake of your flock, for the sake of those who are your people. Use this word as a means to love one another in this way, to love in a way that is free from the stain of hypocrisy and preserve us in it, we pray. Protect us in it, Lord. May we exemplify this. And may it be that through this kind of love, this love that we have for one another, that all may know that we are your disciples. This is the way that you've loved us. And Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to bless us. Give us, Lord, the privilege, the grace to love you and to love one another in a way that is similar to the way in which he has loved us. We know that our love can only be analogous. It's not going to rise in equality to the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has displayed for us. Our love can be like His. We're commanded to love like Him. Just as He has loved us, Lord, let us love one another. For Your glory, for our own good. We pray these things for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.